can go ahead and open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi 4. You are here on an historic night in our little pond. The last teaching in our journey through the Hebrew Scriptures. And uh, I'm, I'm going to take as long as I can <laughs> just to enjoy this. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And with these words, we come to the end of the Hebrew scriptures. After the prophet Malachi, there will be 400 years of a profound silence from the Lord. For some, that silence was even eerie, perhaps disconcerting. As each day went by, as each month went by, as each year went by, imagine yourself being among the children of Israel and the time from the last prophet Malachi to your day as those days would march on would get further and further and further out without a sound from the Lord, without a prophet to speak the truth of of God's word to his people. The silence was broken. If you want to turn in your Bibles to the right, a few books to the book of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. tells us the silence was broken by an angel named Gabriel. Gabriel was sent to an aging, childless priest named Zacharias. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 13, we're told the angel said to him, said to Zacharias, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. Now, without too much background, Zacharias was a priest in the holy place in this moment. He was in the holy place serving in his priestly duty on the circuit of the priests. It was his turn to get to go in there, lighting the lampstand, lighting specifically the altar of incense. And when the priests offered on the altar of incense, they prayed. And as you Bible students know, the altar of incense was always a picture of prayer. That incense rising up to God like our words, our prayers rise up to the Lord as a sweet aroma. So Zacharias is in there and he's praying. What is he praying? We don't know until Gabriel shows up and says, your petition has been answered. And I believe that this man, Zacharias, was in there praying for his wife. Praying for Elizabeth. Praying after many, many long years of barrenness. I don't know if he was praying, hoping that she would have a son. At this point, they were advanced in age and so it was unlikely. He may have just been praying for her heart, praying for her encouragement, praying that she wouldn't be so downcast at the fact that she had not had a child yet, 
whatever he was praying, the angel says, your petition has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you will give him the name John. Now part of that may be that Zacharias had prayed for Elizabeth to have a son like 30 years ago. It doesn't matter. The angel said your petition has been heard. Sometimes the prayers we pray today are not answered for 10, 20, 30 years, but they're answered in God's perfect timing. And I am struck by the prayers I prayed as a young man that God is only now fulfilling, that I have completely forgotten about. But He never forgets. He never forgets a prayer. Your petition has been heard. Elizabeth will bear you a son. You will have, verse 14, joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at His birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he will drink no wine nor liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of righteousness so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And you know the rest of the story. Six months later, Gabriel came with a, a message to another person on the planet, that is the young virgin, that maiden named Mary. Mary immediately jumped up and went and, and to see her, her relative, Elizabeth, to spend some time with Elizabeth, to get out of Dodge, as it were, Zacharias' wife. And as Mary arrived, the two women shared a womb-leaping Holy Spirit experience. And you know that story. Luke one forty-one. further down in the chapter, tells us when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Which made sense because the baby was already filled with the Holy Spirit, John. And so the Holy Spirit just spread out. <laughs> Filling now Elizabeth as well, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. This is before Mary even said, I'm pregnant. And she blurs this out, and this is what I would call the first baby boom. (laughs) And so we know, and we believe from what Luke tells us, that John is the messenger foretold by the prophet Malachi. Go back to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, as we read last week in verse 1, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, my Malachi is the word, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And as we talked about last week, that was a first and second coming prophecy. John is the messenger of Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. And yet there is another messenger as Malachi chapter 4 verse 6 indicates for us, or verse 5, excuse me. But before we get there, I want you to think through something with me and consider what it is the Lord is doing here. If we can draw back and get more of a a panorama of what's going on both in the timing and the placement of the messages and the books of the Bible, there is something fascinating, at least to me. Our Christian Bibles place Malachi chronologically, at least as best as we can, uh, being the last book written in the Hebrew Scriptures, coming around 400, maybe to 420, 420 to 400 in there, uh, B.C. It comes at the end of an era, 
And so those compilers of the Christian canon, that is the the canon of Scripture, the books of the Bibles, we have it, place Malachi there at the end. But the Jewish compilers of the Hebrew canon of Scripture did it differently. And if you were to grab a Jewish Bible today, you would find all the same books that we have in the Hebrew Scriptures, but in a different order. And that order, I think, is telling. The Hebrew Bible, a little walkthrough for understanding here. If you don't know, this is called the Tanakh. The Tanakh. It's easy to understand because it's Tanakh. And it's an acronym for Torah, Nevaim, and Ketuvim. Torah being the first five books. The Law, the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Then comes the Nevaim. The second section, which Nevaim means the prophets. There's a street in Jerusalem today that's called Nevaim. And it's the street of the prophets. So the prophets comes in the second part after Torah, and that's broken into two parts in the Hebrew Bible. The Nevi'im Rishonim, which means the former prophets, and that's Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And then the Nevi'im Aharonim, which is the latter prophets, which is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, not Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and what they call the Treasar, which is the Twelve which we have just completed, the minor prophets. That is, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, all of those together. And in the Hebrew Bible, they're just one book. You don't have 12 separate books. They're just one, the minor prophets, the Treasar, all together. But they're all there, just as we have them in our scriptures. Torah, Nevaim, and then the final, third and final section of the Hebrew Bible is the Ketuvim, which comes at the end. Ketuvim simply means writings. You have the law, the prophets, and the writings. The Ketuvim involves or includes three poetic books. Psalms, Proverbs, Job. The poetic books. And then there are five megalot, they're called, they're scrolls, five scrolls that are put next, the Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. And then the very final section of the Hebrew Bible is just considered other books. And Daniel is the first of the other books, because they really don't know what to do with Daniel. So Daniel's there at the end, and then Ezra... And Nehemiah, which is just called Ezra, but Ezra and Nehemiah are put together as one book. And the Hebrew Bible ends with Chronicles. Now we have 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. The Hebrew Bible is just Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. But Chronicles is the last book of the Hebrew Bible. Why is that important? I believe it goes to a mentality among the Jewish people. The organization of the Tanakh ends with an assumption of silence from the God of Israel. Chronicles ends without the voice of God. Chronicles ends in silence. Second Chronicles 36.23 tells us, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he's appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And thus ends the Hebrew Scriptures. The last words spoken in the Hebrew Bible are by a pagan king. How interesting. 
It goes to the assumption of silence. Truth be told, the last words spoken between the time, between the testaments, the last words spoken by God before He sent the angel Gabriel, the last words spoken were spoken by God. It was His final word. It was not Cyrus who spoke the last words of Scripture as given by the Lord. God did. And when you put Chronicles at the end, you miss that. Chronicles is even out of order chronologically. Malachi is last. And with the end of Malachi comes the final word of God, His word spoken from His mouth to His people before there would be 400 years of silence. The silent years in between the Old Testament, as we sometimes call it, and the New Testament, the Older Testament, I prefer to call it, and the Newer Testament, the silent years seems to have done one of two things depending on the heart of the individual. For those who longed for Messiah's appearing, absence made the heart grow fonder. For those who were looking for Messiah to come. In fact, back in Luke, if you want to jump back over there, Luke chapter 2, note this. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. When Jesus was taken up to the temple in Jerusalem to be presented as was the custom of the Jews, we're told in verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Shimon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And I guarantee if you want the Holy Spirit upon you, look for the consolation of Israel. Look for the redemption that is promised by the Lord. And you will have the Spirit. And so he is looking and he's waiting and he's longing for God to do what he promised through all the prophets and the spirits upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, verse 26, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, Mashiach, Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation. In Hebrew, your Yeshua. My eyes have seen him which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Well, Jesus' father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Shimon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. Then for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And not only Shimon, Anna was there. A prophetess by the name of Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, advanced in years. She lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. Then she never left the temple. Serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him, that is of Jesus, to all those who are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. They longed for Messiah's appearing. Shimon and Anna. And because they longed for His coming, the absence made their hearts grow fonder. Eighty-four years. Eighty-four years Anna waited and longed. And when Jesus came, she was ready. So was Shimon. These two were ready for the Lord when He appeared. 
They were among those who, as Paul puts it, loves His appearing. They loved His appearing. They couldn't wait to see Him. And the four centuries of waiting just increased their love all the more. I hope it does that for you. The more we have to wait for Jesus' coming, we don't get more impatient. No, we become more compelled by His love. With each and every day that passes, more hungry, more desirous, longing more to see Him than we did the day before. I've told you that when this church started, there was so much of that going on in my heart and in my mind. I had just finished teaching Revelation in a Bible study on a Sunday night. I was charged and ready to go. Let me tell you, when I come across these words in Scripture today, I am far more excited than I was then. Love His appearing. Be excited about His coming. Absence will make the heart grow fonder. However, for those who settle, and those in Israel who settled for a life in the here and now, the silence was deafening. Literally. The 400 years with no word from God caused many in Israel to go deaf to the voice of the Lord. So that when He came and when He spoke in the person of Jesus, they were unable to hear. It's exactly what Isaiah said would happen. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. The Lord speaking through Isaiah said, Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. All four Gospel writers quote that passage. And in Mark chapter 4, verse 12, Jesus correlates being healed with being forgiven. He says, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. And the issue was an issue of the heart. Because for the heart of heart, the silence was deafening. And it's the same today. For those who are hard-hearted toward the Lord, when they don't hear Him speak, and, and they probably have not because of the hard heart, they just become more and more and more deaf. Because the heart will not let the voice of the Lord be heard. Jesus said in Luke 16.31, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Did you catch that? If they don't listen to the Torah and the Nevi'im, and we could throw in the Ketuvim, if they don't listen to Tanakh, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe in the resurrection either. Jesus, along with Matthew, Luke, John, and Paul, all together at one time or another, all refer to the Hebrew Scriptures, the Older Testament, as Moses and the prophets. Or as the Law and the prophets. Luke 24-27 tells us, on the road to Emmaus, that marvelous scene, when Jesus shows up as the two men are, are discussing His death and the claims of a resurrection that very day, they're walking, they're confused. He shows up. And we're told in Luke 24-27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that is beginning in Genesis and running through Malachi, Jesus explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. I would like that commentary. Later that night in Jerusalem, we're told in Luke 24-44 that He shows up. The two men race back to Jerusalem to tell the apostles. They're telling the apostles what happened on the road and their struggle believing and Jesus shows up. 
And he said to the apostles, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that is, the Tanakh, must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Why the rabbit trail here? Listen, the divine ending of the Hebrew Bible, the last spoken words of God before Gabriel was sent to Zacharias, are a call to consider Moses and Elijah. That is, the law and the prophets. Consider the law and the prophets, God says. It's the last thing out of His mouth. Go back. Read it through. Study it. Know these words and you will be prepared when Messiah comes. Only by going through again the law and the prophets would His people be ready to receive Messiah as revealed in Scripture. Watch this. Just two verses, three verses tonight. Malachi chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Horeb, Mount Sinai. The giving of the Ten Commandments, what is called the Decalogue. Those ten, and along with them, 603 other commandments contained within Torah law, the law of Moses. And here at the end, the Lord tells us three things worth knowing, worth considering. Number one, remember Moses. Remember Moses, that is the law. Go back to the beginning. Why? Because the law was and is perfect. Because truly the law did and does speak of Jesus Christ. Go back. Remember Moses, he says. Now you might ask the question, as many Christians have over the years, what's a Christian to do with the law of Moses? What is a Christian to do with the Old Testament? Great as I've shared before for flannel graphs in Sunday school back in the day. But but truly, what is a Christian to do with the Old Testament? Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Listen, you want to be a great parent? You want to be a great spouse? Want to be a great friend or brother or sister? Teach these things. Teach Moses. Remember Moses. Teach the Hebrew Scriptures. Well, how do I teach the Hebrew Scriptures? Study them. Study to show yourself approved, as Paul said, a workman who needeth not be ashamed. Study to show yourself approved. Study what, Paul? The New Testament wasn't even written when he said that. It's only one thing you could study to show yourself approved. Torah. Nevi'im. Ketuvim, the Tanakh, study Moses and the prophets and the writings. If you want to be great, if you, if you want to be you know, lame, don't. But if you want to be great in your position in life, study and teach the Word of God. Some of you may still remember this. 
The days when the Ten Commandments were required, and it was not that long ago, the Ten Commandments were required in the public school to be memorized by the age of ten. It's the way it used to be. Now it's illegal to even post them on the walls of a public school classroom. Then we were to learn them and know them and memorize them and be able to repeat them. Today, no Ten Commandments. You can teach the five pillars of Islam, that's just fine. But by no means should you post or teach the Ten Commandments. But there's a greater problem than that. The Ten Commandments have not only been removed from the walls of the classroom, they've been removed from the walls of the heart. Statistic for you. Less than one half of evangelical Christians surveyed can even list five of the Ten Commandments. Oh, and by the way, that statistic came from 1993. That was 20 years ago, gang. 20 years ago, less than half of evangelicals could quote half of the Ten Commandments. I wonder today how further down the line we've gone with the Ten Commands, with the Law of Moses, with the teaching of the Hebrew Scriptures, not placed in our hearts, but placed on a shelf. Remember Moses. We wonder why, as Malachi pointed out with the people of Israel, we see in the church, ministry is crooked, marriages are corrupt, and money is coveted. Why do we see these things? No one's teaching. The Word is forgotten. What is a Christian to do with the law? How about remember it? How about teach it? Because the reality is the law is perfect. I'm not talking about being legalistic, and please don't get me wrong. I am not a Judaizer. I'm not a Jewish wannabe. I don't want to be Jewish. I just want to belong to Jesus. And no offense to my Jewish friends, but they've not had an easy road. That's not the road I would choose. But I do believe in understanding and knowing and teaching the Hebrew Scriptures. And I have 11 years to prove it. But it's taken me 11 years to understand that. How critical it truly is. Turn your Bibles back to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Again, I I don't want to encourage a legalistic lifestyle as in going back to the law to live these out. You know, to make sure that you don't eat a cheeseburger. Because that would be against Torah law. Well, at least the interpretation of Torah law. That would not be kosher. You can't have milk and meat at the same time. Because of the law that says you can't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Because of that, no McDonald's. Actually, they have McDonald's in Israel, just no cheese on the burgers. Back to the beginning. When we go back to the beginning, there is a great blessing. I've been asked, what are you going to do when you finish Revelation? When you go through the New Testament, you finish up Revelation. What are you going to do then, Rick? Well, if we're even still here, we're going to go back to the beginning. And we're going to do the whole thing over again until Jesus comes. Because there's a blessing in it. A great blessing. And you guys can fly all you want. I can still hear. (laughs) Psalm 19, note this. Psalm 19, verse 7, says the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. You see, the point of the perfect law is to reveal that no man, no woman, no child is perfect. 
The law is perfect, we are not. So how does it restore the soul? Romans 5.20, the law came in so the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how the perfect law restores the soul. It brings us to the perfect law keeper, Jesus Christ. And so in our study of the law and our understanding of the law, as we see our imperfections, His grace just gets bigger. And that's why I believe that the study of the Hebrew Scriptures does not make one legalistic. It fills one with grace. Because you realize how inept we are at keeping any of these things. Praise God for His grace. The law is perfect. It restores the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. (laughs) Making wise the simple, which is good news for me. The testimony is sure. The wisdom that we glean from these pages is absolutely astounding and it's not the wisdom of man. You know, I I sit up here and I, I teach week in and week out. If you hear something and go, man... That just makes sense. Man, that is so wise. I've told you before, it is not from me. It's because there's wisdom in the pages of God's Word. And I see it all the time. We go through and I go, I I never would have put it that way. That's perfect. That's what I needed to hear, Lord. It's the wisdom from above. It is the wisdom of the Spirit of God who takes us far beyond ourselves. The testimony is sure. He says the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The precepts are right, which means they are not arbitrary. As we've talked about before, they are right on. God doesn't just throw them out there for fun. They are right. They're good. They're perfect. And as such, when we do, when we keep the precepts of the Lord, we rejoice. Because we find in keeping these precepts and walking out God's truths that life is better in our heart. That there's more a sense of goodness and rightness about things. He goes on in verse 8. says, The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Forget visine and clear eyes. That's not what we need. God's commands give a person vision in a dusty world. Are your eyes red and and itching and dry from too much earthly input? The eyes will will start to burn. And if you deal with allergies, you know your eyes burn. Your eyes ever burn just watching the TV? Just like, I don't need to see this. Well, the commandments of the Lord are so pure, they clear your vision. They help us to see things right. The reason why our country is so messed up is people are not seeing clearly. They're seeing by the wisdom of man. They're seeing by all the thoughts of the the heart, which is desperately sick. But to see by the words of God, that's to see clearly. My foot got stuck there. Okay. Going on, verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Remember what Malachi said about Jesus in His second coming? Who can endure the day of His appearing? Malachi 3.2 Who can stand when He appears? He's like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. The fear of the Lord cleanses and keeps you clean. Right now. So that you might be one who endures forever. You don't want to wait around for the cleansing of the Lord when He comes. We want to be clean now. 
And the fear of the Lord brings us humbly to His feet for that cleansing. He says, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They're righteous. They're rock solid. They're reliable. You can trust them. And finally, he says in verse 10, They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. What is a Christian to do with the law of Moses? Remember it. Teach it. Study it. Look for Jesus in these pages. Remember Moses. And though we know the law is perfect and we are not, we also know a day is coming when this law, God's law, will be written on hearts and on minds. Jeremiah 31.33 This is the covenant, the new covenant, which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, on their heart I will write it, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the Hebrew writer tells us we are grafted into that promise. We are recipients of the law written on hearts and on minds. The day truly is coming when you're going to know the law inside out because God's going to just write it on your heart. You're going to know the perfect things of the Lord and the righteousness of God in a way that we still don't fully comprehend. Remember Moses. Go back to Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. The second thing the Lord calls for here at the end. Remember Moses. Secondly, regard Elijah. Regard Elijah. In other words, the prophets. Prophecy. Go back to the beginning to remember Moses and look to the future of all the prophets have spoken. Look ahead to the end. Remember Moses. Look back where we've been. Remember, regard the prophecy of Elijah. Look ahead to the end. Here is where John the Baptist and the issue of who John is, who John was, here's where it's clarified. Back in verse 1 of chapter 3 again, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. John the Baptist, my messenger. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Was it John? Or was it Elijah? The disciples wanted to know the same thing. Is it John or is it Elijah? Who is this messenger? Keep your finger there and turn over one book to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17. Peter, James, and John had just seen Elijah. They'd gone up the mount with Jesus. The story is told in Matthew 17 how he was transfigured before them. You you may recall the story. How he was just an amazing image before them, glowing white as snow, gleaming like the sun. And we're told that Moses and Elijah are standing there talking to him. Peter, James, and John see this. This is on their minds. As they come down the mountain, as they descend... The mountain, after having just seen Elijah, verse 9 of Matthew 17, they were coming down and Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And His disciples asked Him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And He answered and said, Elijah is coming. Note that. Elijah is coming 
and will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. When Jesus said Elijah already came, he's talking about John who had been killed just prior. When he said, but Elijah is coming, he's no longer talking about John there. He's talking about who? This is one of the easiest questions I will ever answer you or ask you. He's talking about Elijah. To be sure, Elijah is coming. Jesus says two things here to the apostles. Elijah will come personally, and Elijah did come positionally. He's coming personally. The actual, the true, the Elijah, the guy. He's coming. He will come to restore things before the great and glorious day of the Lord. But positionally, he came in the person of John the Baptist. Remember now what the angel Gabriel said to Zacharias, John's father. Luke 1.17 It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. So I think... And this is a little bit of guesswork on my part, a little surmise, but I believe the very same Spirit that empowered Elijah empowered John the Baptist. More than likely, just simply speaking of the Holy Spirit, who gave Elijah his prophetic power and ability and then came upon John the Baptist as well when he was in the womb of his mother. Positionally, John was the Elijah of Malachi 3.1 and even of, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 5. However, you know as you read this, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, that can't be John the Baptist. Because the day of the Lord is yet future. So you have these two men, these two as we called them last week, messengers. The positional Elijah, John, who, by the way, never claimed to be actual Elijah. In fact, he rejected it, and we'll see that when we get next week into the Gospel of John. He never claimed to be. When asked, he said, no, I'm not Elijah. He's very clear on that point. Positionally, he was. Personally, he was not. The actual Elijah is yet coming. And he will come, as the Scriptures very clearly teach, as a forerunner of the return of Jesus Christ. And I believe as one of the two witnesses of Revelation 11. Turn over there real quickly. Last book in your Bible, Revelation 11. Rick, we've covered this before. I know in the great. Revelation 11, verse 3. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, the Lord says, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. And that 1260 days, you know, is three and a half years. Interesting note. Keep that in mind. Three and a half years. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouths and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so it will not rain, so rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. They have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. So when you look at these two witnesses, 
Who was it who called down fire from heaven that licked up his offering and shut off the prophets of Baal? That was Elijah, obviously. The power of fire? Elijah had that. This witness has that same power. Who was it who turned off the faucet in the sky to stop the rain? That was Elijah. Same power with the witness right here. It's obviously Elijah who's being talked about here. But wait a minute. When Elijah prayed and it stopped raining in Israel, how long was there no rain? Three and a half years. Same amount of time that the witness here is going to pray and the rain will be shut off. Exactly three and a half years. James 5.16 tells us the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Same time frame as half of the tribulation. Same time frame as this witness in Revelation 11 will pray that the rain stops. Coincidence? As Cheryl and I often say, I think not. And then he prayed again, James says. And the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. Stop and note this. James points out that for all the power and all the wonder and all the effectiveness of the prayers of Elijah, James points out that he is no different in nature than you and me. Elijah was a guy with a nature just like ours. Elijah was just like you. Elijah could be sitting here on a Wednesday night in Bible study and you would not even know, well, except for the camel hair hair outfit, that might give him away. You wouldn't know. And oftentimes we look around in auditorium, we look around at other believers and you don't know who the Elijahs are. But the truth is, every single follower of Jesus Christ has the ability to pray like Elijah. Well, how do we do that? Just start praying. Just start praying. Remember Moses and regard Elijah. Pray like Elijah. It's not hard to do. You just open your mouth and begin to speak to the Lord. And your prayers can be just as potent as the prayers of Elijah. So, all that said, I fully believe Elijah is one of the two witnesses. I think that's obvious. I'm also convinced Moses is the other one, as I've shared with you all before. Because we can ask the question, through whom did the Lord turn the waters of the Nile to blood? Or send down the plagues on Egypt? It was through Moses. Well, this witness has the same power as that. And, who along with Elijah met with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses. Not Enoch, for you Enochians. (laughs) Moses and Elijah met Jesus. We're standing there with Him. But there's even more. Who are Yahweh's two point men standing here at the conclusion of the Hebrew Scriptures? Moses and Elijah. Remember Moses, verse 4. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, verse 5. The Lord in His wisdom concludes the Hebrew Scriptures with His two point men, Moses and Elijah. Now look at verse 6. Speaking of Elijah, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And there was great revival when John the Baptist came. 
And he did restore many children to their fathers and many fathers to their children. As the people came out repenting, being baptized by John, there was a huge movement, I think larger than we realize, in Israel in that day. A massive revival of preparation for Messiah to come. And John led that. People were coming from everywhere to go out to Bethany beyond Jordan and be baptized by John. And their lives were changed. And so at some level, he did affect restoration among the people to prepare them for Messiah. But it wasn't right before the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's a day all the prophets have told us is still to come. John, after the rejection of Jesus, listen, after the rejection of Jesus, the land was cursed. Lest I come and smite the land with a curse. So John came, a restoration happened, Messiah came, Messiah was rejected, and the land was smitten with a curse. But this is still bigger. This is still future. Because after the Elijah comes, the true Elijah comes, heralding the Christ, the land will not be cursed. It will be fully restored. As we just read, verse 2, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Now we come down to it. As we read the final words of this prophecy, and as the Hebrew Scriptures end, it's literally, and I want to read this to you in the King James because the translation is a little tighter. It's not so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse, but it's lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Same meaning, but there's a little different sense to it. Lest I come and smite the land with a curse. And there will be no further word from the Lord. That effectively ends the Hebrew Scriptures as we pointed out. For 400 years, the Lord quietly allows Israel to either soak it in or let the Word run off. Before the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that is a compelling phrase to conclude with. To my mind, it is the most compelling phrase of any of the minor prophets. Lest I come and smite the land with a curse. The question for all of you to consider tonight, and myself as well, is what will we do with the word we've been given? God gave Israel 400 years to consider before Messiah came. How long do we have? What will we do with what we've heard? Before Christ comes the second time, I encourage you, I think the Word encourages us to remember Moses, to regard Elijah, remember the law, regard the prophets for this reason that we might, number three, recognize Jesus. That we might be those who are loving His appearing. As Peter said in Acts 10.43, of Him all the prophets bear witness that through His name everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins. G. Campbell Morgan wrote the following. Side by side with the bright and wondrous story of infinite piety and untiring compassion, you have the record of human failure. In every dispensation, the Garden of Eden, 
The period of conscience, the patriarchal age, the mosaic economy, the days of the kings, the times of the prophets. Every age ends in failure. And when God looks upon the people whom He had called and created in order that they might be a blessing to the whole earth, He says to them, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. But, in that first word of the last clause shines a ray of hope and gladness. Did you catch it? Lest I come. The promise of His coming. Lest I come. The Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, do not end with a curse pronounced. They do end with a curse threatened. They end with a warning levied. Yet even as a curse is threatened, His coming is announced. Lest I come and smite the land with a curse. His coming is announced and so we recognize Jesus in His second coming. We look for His second coming. He will come as He promised to come. Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus' words, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. In other words, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. I'm going to come one way or the other. question is, where are you going to be when I come? Will you be among the cursed? Or will you be coming with me riding on the clouds? He says... Revelation 22.13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Revelation 22.16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David. I am the bright and morning star. Revelation 22.20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And that concludes the Hebrew Scriptures. Lest I come. Lord Jesus, we look for Your coming. We cannot wait for Your coming. And until You come, You have advised us and we take You at Your Word to remember Moses, to regard Elijah. Lord, to pour over all the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, to constantly be feeding upon Your Word. And to regard what the prophets have said. For we know, Lord... That the, the, the testimony of, or the witness of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus Christ. It is all about you. And so we recognize Jesus in these things. And my prayer, Lord, is that you will help us to see Jesus throughout the Word, to see with eyes of Jesus in this world, and to look for and long for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know that day is near. Lord, we bless your name. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.